we have just witnessed two forms of revolt. The first, uncoordinated youth rebelling against nothing it can define. The second, an established, successful, secure member of the establishment turning on and biting the hand that feeds him. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey. And today we're going to talk about the second half of The Prisoner here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to the second half of our special covering the prisoner. It's just totally stems naturally from superheroes and not at all because we're <clears throat> trying to get back into the rhythm of things. You say the second part that could be the end, but if it's really like the prisoner, you won't know if it's going to be the end or if we'll jump back into it like three months down the road and have number six pop back up. Well, I mean, theoretically, there are some options. I mean, we could have, there are good options. There have been a couple of like pretty decent comic book uh, spinoffs of The Prisoner continuing the story. I think there was a tie-in novel. And also there was a 2009 TV show, The Prisoner, that we don't talk about. It had Ian McKellen, and that is the only thing I will say nice about it. (laughs) If I remember right, that was on AMC, right? Yeah, yeah. It was AMC where The Prisoner was... uh, uh, he worked in a corporation and then was taken to the village and he has a son and it, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, it's not great. I would probably jump in a different direction and go, if we were to do a follow up to the prisoner, it would probably be wayward pines. I don't know what that is actually. <laughs> I've given you now a, a YouTube rabbit hole to go down later today. Oh no. Uh, and spoilers. also there was actually, um, uh, Big Finish did a kind of reimagining of The Prisoner as an audio drama. Um, I just listened to it recently. It's actually pretty good. Um, it, it addresses some things that some people argue are not problems. And actually something that these episodes will kind of dig into more. Um, whereas the second half of The Prisoner kind of stops being a coherent narrative and whether that is intentional or remarkably what percentage of that was intentional and what percentage of that was kind of the the foibles of production is up to individual interpretation uh whereas the radio drama tried to present a relatively cohesive narrative and some people argue it's slightly diminished as a result but i i think it's an interesting (laughs) retread of of the material i think that Patrick wrote The Prisoner much the same way they did when they wrote like the first, what was it, four seasons of Lost. Well, this would be kind of a cool idea. Let's just do this one this week. Oh, people want a coherent story. Hmm. Nah. No, I I, I continue to believe, especially the more we talk about this and the more we cover it, that this is the 1967 version of Lost in so many ways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, uh, they had no idea where they were going. Um, They were forced to come up with an ending that didn't satisfy anyone, but also was pretty vague. Um, it was primarily a show that was done on the back of some big name people uh, and uh, really captured public imagination for the time it was out. And the, I think the difference is that Lost went way too long and then kind of just fizzled out. Uh, the Prisoner, I think by virtue of being so short, actually has a lot of longevity because there's there's – so little material there that people can kind of pull it apart and analyze it and really dig into it. Um, whereas Lost was, I think, seven million seasons long and it just kind of died. 
But that goes back to, I think, Patrick McGowan originally had like a six episode or seven episodes in mind. And mm-hmm. they came back to him and said, no, we want like 20 something. And he gave them around 17. So that means there's a roughly 10 episodes that are totally irrelevant for what he yes. really wanted to do. And we're going to cover one of those at least today. <laughs> I think that is the key, key episode of this entire series. And everything revolves around it. It was a glimpse <laughs> into reality. It's like Red Dwarf when they when they were like in the video game machine, and they got to see their real lives or were they? That's what this is. Red Dwarf is another show that I don't think we get enough credit for how it is weirdly prescient. <clears throat> the president was also weirdly prescient. Um, but the Red Dwarf, the one like they, they anticipated virtual reality. They anticipated um, alt-right uh, uh, ideology. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in Red, Red Dwarf. It's like, wow, that aged really well. Okay. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> It was ahead of its time, and then it stopped being ahead of its time, and I think it's still going now, and they're in, like, season, what, 14? Something like that, yeah. Um, it keeps kind of disappearing, coming back. Uh, kind of like Futurama, where it keeps getting canceled, yeah. and then comes back, and then it gets canceled, and it comes back. Um, I think the I've last one I later like seasons. back in the red, and that was, oof, was that before Zora was born? Uh, it, it's been a while. Wow. Been a minute. It's a while. But we're not here to talk but about Red we're not here. <laughs> For the Red Dwarf cast, although we could totally change it right now and we could talk about Red Dwarf. That's how well I know it. I could grab the Red Dwarf RPG off my shelf. Wow. I, I actually worked on the sub- source book for the Red Dwarf RPG. Look at, oh, all right, that's it. We're changing the whole thing. It's the Red Dwarf cast. Go. So how did they bring you in to work on the source book for Red Dwarf, Eddie? Um, so uh, actually, um, I was working for... Uh, Deep Seven, I think, was the company that made it. Uh, and um, they were friends of Cynthia, who uh, worked in Cartoon Action Hour with. And they were like, um, you know, we're looking for additional writers. Uh, and I was like, I would love to work. I, they announced Red Orphans. I'd love to work on that. And I said, we've already written for that. And they go, oh, that sucks. Um, but I was like, you know, I've written this G.I. Joe ripoff. And I've written this Transformers ripoff. So certainly I can write your Star Trek ripoff. And <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then so... Um, uh, uh, they came back around and said that actually what they're working on was the, uh, the source book is they want to take what someone take a season of the show, which I think at that time was only up to seven season series um, and basically recap each episode and then pull all of the gameable bits out and give them stats. Oh. And so I think I had series four, um, which was the backwards one and uh, um, backwards one's the one I mean, I remember. Uh, and so that I just, yeah, I had to read a whole season um, because it's, Again, the, the RPG industry is so small. Everyone just did everyone. It's really how it happens. Jesus. That was like um, before Kachansky too, I think, right? Because Kachansky yeah. came back around season five or six. I think so. For yeah. a couple seasons. And then um, amusing side note is uh, like many, many years later, I think it was like four or five years ago, uh, someone emailed me out of the blue and was like, you are the only person who worked on any of the tabletop role-playing game that we can get a hold of. Um. I'm putting together an encyclopedia of all of the Red Dwarf spinoff fiction, tie-in fiction. <laughs> Can you please give me some information? And I was like, I didn't work on the core rule book. I'll tell you what I got. And so I sent him some files and whatnot. And he was so appreciative and sent me a copy of the book, which sadly has not been lost to the midst of moving. Um, but uh, it was just a wild moment of like, I, what? Like, there's, there's, no, there's nobody else. You, you're down to me. <laughs> You're, you're looking at the wrong way. They went up to you. They were fortunate enough to have a moment to speak to the Eddie Webb. 
like acknowledge your greatness. And I think that you still currently have an active Kickstarter, right? I do. Well, actually, I don't know if it'll be active by the time this goes live, but I'm sure pre-orders will be going on. But yes, um, please back my dog game about dogs who uh, fight in the future to uncover technology and think it's magic because they're bad at archaeology. That is the pitch of my game. <laughs> All right. If people really want us to do a Red Dwarf cast, um, shoot us an email, a text, um, jump in the Discord. Otherwise, yeah. we're here. <laughs> to talk about the second greatest show made in 1967 through 68 that had 17 episodes. What's the first one now? That's a very specific choice here. I don't know yet, but just in case there is one, I wanted to cover my bases. <laughs> it is a one of the top number of those episodes at that time. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, so... Um, uh, so as we kind of alluded to, um, the prisoner first half, we kind of mentioned, w- w- is pretty tight. I mean, it's not like uh, serialized or anything, uh, but there's some kind of connectivity a bit between episodes. And, and certainly there were strong themes and, and, and it was very much the, you know, some form of number six gets put into bizarre psychological circumstance. You try to break him to get information. That's kind of the rough theme of the first half of the show. Um Somewhere around episode eight or nine, uh, as we talked about uh, uh, last time, there was a push and pull between the uh, British series length of trying six or seven episodes versus trying to make it uh, for American television, which requires 26 episodes. They settled on 17 because reasons they're lost of time. Um, And so there's a lot of stuff in the middle that's interesting, but really has nothing to do with the show. Uh, and so I picked this first one, Living in Harmony, because it is the best example of both interesting and has nothing to do with the show to the point where if you're not paying attention, you're not even sure you're watching The Prisoner for like a good chunk of it. <laughs> That's the beauty uh, of it, even from how it started, like perfect. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, to recap real quick, um, uh, a man storms into a marshal's office and quits as sheriff. He walks off, but he's ambushed and kidnapped into the town of Harmony, where the judge tries to get him to take up the badge again. When a woman is threatened by a strange kid, he agrees, but refuses to carry a gun. People start dying, but the stranger plans only to escape with the saloon girl. When she is murdered by the kid, the stranger takes back his guns and sets about for revenge. And so uh, this is a Western and certainly was not at all inspired by me going, oh, Chris would like a Western episode. (laughs) Um, but, uh, also, I mean, this is along with a couple other episodes, like, uh, the girl who was death, uh, is very much the prisoner going to the point where Patrick McGowan has stopped satirizing spy fiction and started satirizing television as a whole, frankly. Um, he's really just kind of getting more and more surreal with his story. And, and I, I think, Again, you could argue whether it's this episode or the girl who was death, but certainly around that point, the show starts doing something interesting. And so having this entire episode that's nominally set in a Western, to the point where even the opening credits are redone to fit this theme, is is fascinating. Well, this is essentially, for me, when I, when I saw it, I can boil it down to like three movies for me. Uh, mm-hmm. The Man With No Name. Clockwork Orange and High Noon. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, it, it's definitely 
well, one thing that's re- interesting about this, because uh, like you mentioned, Clockwork Orange, is that it's not only just what if the prisoner but Western, which frankly is obviously the kind of the, the short pitch for it, but by Six's refuse to carry guns. I mean, I, again, we talked this before. It's probably largely due to the fact that McEwen was very reluctant to show gun violence on screen. But it does also act as kind of a critique of Westerns as a genre, which is interesting because near the middle of it, it's like the the idea of the Western tropes start to get really analyzed by the show itself and goes, why do we really have a sheriff and why is this so important and why is gun violence so prevalent in the American West? And then it kind of just says, but we're not going to answer any of those and we're just going to go back to being super weird for a while. Well, also part of it is, um, so some of the stuff I've been listening to, and because I, I do not, I'm not going to do a bunch of research, but I'll do some YouTube videos, is uh, Pat was supposedly like a tall, very intimidating man and loved to like get, get into like fist fights. So mm-hmm. that's something like that he enjoyed doing even more so like a Western. If they're not shooting you, they're usually punching you or they're right. doing something questionable to cattle. Or in the case of Blazing Saddles, punching cattle. <laughs> See? But you know what that is, though? What? Questionable to cattle. It certainly is questionable. Punching a cow in the face is, is, is questionable <laughs> by every definition. Blazing Saddles, by the way, is a movie that could not be made today. No. Oh, God, no. No. Um, it is it is a, a great movie, but also has... Requires a very specific lens to watch it through. <laughs> it's it's, it's and, hard to watch. And now, since we're since we're on the Mel Brooks cast now, um, so folks that <laughs> may not realize this is our first time recording a little bit. And now that we're in the Mel Brooks cast, because you know, History of the World Part Two is coming to Hulu. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least for us in the states. I'm not sure about you people that get to live the high life yeah, abroad, jet I setting. It's a Hulu exclusive. So I don't know if I'll be able to watch it at all. Because like, there's there's. One thing I'm learning is there's stuff that I just can't watch. It's going to be fun for future episodes because, like, uh, someone's saying, hey, I've been watching Poker Face. And I'm like, I don't know. And it turns out I can't watch Poker Face in the UK at all. It's just it's not available here. And so I was like, oh, that's neat, I guess. Uh, by the way, Poker Face, highly recommended if you want to buy it one day on Blu-ray. God damn it. <laughs> but, but I do have Knives Out on Netflix. So at least I can find them watch that movie finally. <laughs> Good. So we can do our Knives Out cast. Um, yes, Knives Out so- cast on you. I actually do want to talk about those, but. Anyway, one of the reasons that we chose to do some of these offshoot episodes, folks, is because we haven't talked in a while. So we have a tendency to banter and become less on point, which I am prone to. But Eddie's a professional. So we did these so Eddie can refine his professional self so that therefore I can be the one that keeps dragging us off course. Right. But 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 now you're having to drag me back on course. <laughs> it's It's a strange feeling. I don't like it. All right. Well, then let's get back to this. Um, so, living in harmony. One of the things that um, is is also worth calling out um, is we we've been kind of we talked before first episode about how it's, it's British television in the sixties. Uh, certain cast decisions were made in the sixties that wouldn't be today. Um, on top of this, we now have a layer of American history being done through a British lens, which can sometimes also be really rough. So that's a really roundabout way of saying the Mexican character is highly problematic and very frustrating and just recognizing that the guy in grease paint playing the Mexican character is just bad. <laughs> Let's yes. just call that out right there. Oh. I saw that and I was like, Whew. It, it wasn't enough to have me 
reconsidered the episode because he's not in off enough, but certainly I was like, that is definitely a decision I was made in 67. But it, it is bad enough that it sort of like punches you in the face every yeah. time. Yeah, every every time it came on screen, I was just like, oh, I was enjoying this. Now, oh, now this is going on. Um, less. So, oh, I'll, I'll just quickly say less uh, uh, offensively, but still more knowingly is also some of the American accents are dicey. <laughs> let's say. Are you referring to harmony? Harmony. Um, which is amusing because uh, uh we talked about this before. We I've been we've been, I've been watching uh, Danger Man a little bit. Uh, and so Patrick McEwen does the kind of mid-Atlantic American accents in that. And so he tries to do the, a similar American accent here. And while it is indeed an American accent, it is the wrong American accent. <laughs> so it's like, you're not wrong, Patty, but also you're not right. Cowpokes came from all over. So <laughs> that's fair. Technically. That's fair. I'm not going to defend it because it was really bad. I'm sorry. I, I, I like want to do a whole thing, but it was bad. That almost made me stop watching it and go, Eddie, do we really have to watch this? But I, I, I persevered, and I'm glad that I did. But I more to the episode, though, for, for me, is I liked the opening, like how it just started with the music. You had a retelling of the original opening that we got to see, yes. which was great in of itself. And to contrast how for the we'll say the British version, they use sort of a knockout gas and sort of took the person away like that compared to the American version where they just beat someone down to knock them unconscious to take them. Right. Like that in of itself is also telling and somewhat from a limited perspective of the time indicative of the two different societies. And one of the things that this episode does, is one of the reasons why some of the stuff like the bad accents don't bother me as much as they would normally is the fact that this is all a fiction, Right. This was all constructed for Six's benefit. So the fact that it feels a bit off on some level actually works. And the one thing that's really interesting about this is that it's on a metatextual level, a metaphor for Six's ongoing problems. Like you said, it's like as opposed to being a spy who retires, it's a sheriff who retires. Um, you know, uh, someone's trying to cajole him to uh, uh, find out why he quit. Uh, and the metaphor here is that um, him refusing to carry a gun is the reason somehow tied to why he quit. So the fact that he picks up the guns in this episode means that Six actually failed on a level, right? He gave in in a way that he's not in any other episode in the show. And that works on a metatextual level, but also works in a diegetic level in the sense that that's what number two wanted. Number two wanted to put him in this bizarre circumstance that emulated his own circumstance and get him to fail to try to then map that failure back onto Six's own moments. Uh, and so it's interesting that he Six does not walk away crowning glory in this. I mean, th th this, this episode is pretty much top to bottom of failure for number six, which is interesting to show this late in the game is so willing to A.B.H. to say, no, it's okay if Six just doesn't succeed. But that also lines up with some of the Westerns they are also trying to emulate. Because yeah, in true. High Noon, you have, for anyone that hasn't seen High Noon, or uh, like, <laughs> I don't name spoilers, but go watch a movie. Sorry. Um, <laughs> in High Noon, you have a sheriff that's more or less trying to retire, but there's some killers coming, and he's trying to recruit town members to help him fight these killers. And everywhere he goes, no one will help him. 
at all. Mm-hmm. And in the end, he wins because his wife-to-be, who for Gary Cooper, I think she was like 30 years younger than Gary Cooper, but that's a whole other story now, to talk oh, about yeah. when we do our westerns. Oof. And he technically wins, but he still loses from having to do all of that stuff. And the town didn't send him to defend itself. Uh, the man with no name, you have Clint Eastwood, who is a whole bag of dicks. Um, <laughs> yes. Get his butt kicked but he tries to do the right thing but still sort of loses in the end so it's a constant reoccurring thing even for the clockwork orange who sorry it's not not a hero no but it is your protagonist who technically loses from the start loses in the middle and then loses at the end right and i mean this goes into uh not not try to diverge or digress too much again but um the overlap of Westerns and noir in the forties is interesting because you're right that this, the forties is where Westerns as a genre started to take a darker turn. And so now we're here at the sixties. They're looking to those forties and fifties films and going these, they're, they're much more qualified wins. And uh, it's interesting because looking back on it, we don't remember this kind of blip of, western pacing as much we really look more towards the 90s uh that's when westerns started to have a kind of more ambiguous ending but you're right like they, they, like the spaghetti westerns were very kind of ambiguous mm-hmm. on that front um so we have this kind of cycle of of black and white literally white hat black hat uh terms we get now comes from westerns into this moment then then in the 70s and 80s they kind of go back to that peak before the 90s again around tombstone they start to uh, uh, become more muddy again so we have this interesting moment where, where the moment it's satirizing in western genre uh, cycle is at the cusp of when westerns themselves are starting to become a little more explicitly black and white again uh and i guess a hey, i'm gonna plug for myself since we're still not quite back on course yet uh, for people who are curious i did write a little book about the old west called uh haunted west it's really good go get it it is Done. it's an excellent book I highly recommend it. All 800 million pages of it. Oh, it's a little <laughs> book. So it's just big enough to stop a bullet. Uh, someone actually true. someone actually tweeted me and says that in the post-apocalypse, the only thing they want is their weapon is Haunted West. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can kill somebody and still give you entertainment later when you're done. All right. <clears throat> that, that, that is amazing uh, uh, support for that book. Um, but the the clockwork orange piece for me is solidified oh, yeah. by that top hat and that actor. Like I saw him, I was like, "Wow, why did they not put you in the clockwork orange?" Maybe you might have been too old at the time, but like it was. Mm. Yes, um, and uh, uh, we will see him again momentarily. Uh, Spoilers. A bit of continuity I did not realize when I picked these episodes. When I saw it, I was like, "Oh, okay, that worked out really well for me." <laughs> Um, but you're right. It, 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 it's um, the kid. Wow, that character and that top hat does kind of fit into westerns. At the same time, that's where the genre conventions start breaking down on screen, um, mm-hmm. and it starts happening more and more to the point where the around like 50 minutes in or 45 minutes in, um, it, it disappears entirely. It becomes an episode of The Prisoner for the last like five minutes. Uh, but there is interesting that you do see kind of a visual degrading of the genre, like like the sets start to look a little more fake as it goes on to the point where you know it, at, near the end we actually see number six looking at actual like just plywood 
mock-ups. Uh, so again, how much of that was intentional on McEwen's part as a, or whoever the director was, which is probably also McEwen, um, and how much of that was just constraints uh, of production getting it done as fast as possible, I don't know. But what is cool is it does look like the show's actually falling apart in front of you, which is fascinating. Sort of vice like the drugs and chemicals are wearing off of him. So it's a nice dovetailing. Do we know Absolutely. if McEwen wrote this episode also, possibly under a pseudonym? I do not know who wrote this one. I, the last half of the the, the, the show, um, I understand it gets harder and harder to figure out who wrote things, except for the last two, which we know that Patrick McEwen heavily rewrote, at least. Um, so, uh, and to the point where we'll talk more about Fallout and Fallout, because Fallout's a whole thing. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know who wrote this episode. And... I would like to point out that this is one of the the rare women in the show that Patrick McEwen had any sort of chemistry with. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because like um, this is also this is the episode where he breaks all of his rules, right? Like he has a yep, in, you know, chemistry with a woman on screen. He picks up a gun. Um, uh, granted, all that happens in a pretty short chunk of the episode, but you're right. Uh, um, he genuinely had some some strong chemistry with with the the uh, saloon girl, and it really worked in a way that surprised me compared to that super awkward big ben episode <laughs> it, it's a, the only ones that i can really remember now off the top of my head are gonna be oh i forgot her name but she was number two in episode 13 who lived in his house like they had incredible chemistry like yes. the best out of the entire series and this is like i want to say the second best that we've seen everyone else has been very standoffish very nope we do not do that here. We are not James. Many happy, many happy returns. That's the one you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, which I remember just because now did he have chemistry with her, but also she was an older woman, which was really yeah. rare in the sixties. Uh, but um, anything else about living in harmony there it's, it is such a weird episode that I'm just utterly scattershot because there's so many things I want to talk yes. about from it, but I want to, I can't leave it unless we talk about the ending that has, um, equivalently, though, um, all the actors from like his delusional state, then reverting almost into the characters they played until the, up to the point where he, where number eight, I think, is who the kid is, yep. kills her. Mm -hmm. Like that's that is something we have not seen. Like we've had innuendo before that they were going to kill the other people that didn't perform, but we have not seen it happen. That's true. This is. For a show as dark as The Prisoner, you're right. There's very little actual on-screen death. Um, and also, within the metaphors of 60s British television, it's very much implied to be sexual as well in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's, there's some form of sexual assault happening here. Um, it, it's, it's so coded that if you're not looking for it, you probably wouldn't even notice it. Um, but you and I both have a strong familiarity with how British 60 television is paced. So you can kind of see through the yeah. lines. Go, this is what they wanted to say, <laughs> but they didn't. But I just think that's, as that is something that hasn't happened so bluntly before toward pointing out, which then could go back to linking to how they were doing the more violent aspects of what they believe American culture to be and how that might've seeped in to their own culture to have that sort of impact. Weirdly, um, as I was watching this, I kept thinking of Judge Dredd. Um, and hmm. not, not the movie, the, the comic. Well, I suppose the movie too, to agree. Um, in the sense that Judge Dredd is ultimately a British look through uh, American violence. 
and both getting and misunderstanding it and what new comes out as a result of that. And so I think this is kind of the same thing in the sense of there uh, clearly people involved with this are trying to go, what is so fascinating about American Westerns and trying to showcase that, but also critique it. Um, and you're right. The ends, uh, uh, ends up playing a bit like the old 60s bugaboo of American television is too violent and will turn your kids into psychopaths. Mm -hmm. um, so so there, there's also a, a metatextual uh, critique of television as a concept, which is happening on some level here. Uh, and again, with The Prisoner, it's so hard to tell how much of this stuff's intended, how much of this stuff we're reading into it, and how much of this stuff is just going, shit, we need to ship this episode. Uh, so, I mean, I, 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 I can't say, but I do think that this show is good enough that I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt and say that at least some of this was intentional. I do believe some of this was intentionally geared at, look at how violent American TV is. I think so, too. And. But it's brilliant, though, that it is built in such a way that you can pull all those things from it fr coming from your own whatever perspective you're coming from. Like yeah, that absolutely. in of itself is a genius ability to do even more so given that we're going to go and say a good 70 percent of this is all Patrick McGowan, like from the directing, from the writing, the rewriting, like the bullying, the bullying people on set to do what he <laughs> want them yes. to do, regardless of what it is like. That is a, a genius level of influence of a show if not how it happened the aftermath of it is absolutely yeah that's uh, it is there anything else you want to talk about okay and they'll move on to once upon a time uh again to re kind of recap uh time has run out a returning number two is given one week to find out why number six resigned and declare something called degree absolute which is a process to only leave one of them alive uh, drugged and brainwashed into a stressful state, number six is forced to relive important moments in his life to reveal his secrets. Even so, he will resist. Can he survive and last long enough to run out the clock? And this episode is both amazing and hilarious because if you are just looking at it, it's literally two actors on a stage with a bunch of props just talking for an hour. That, that's the whole episode. It is the cheapest <laughs> fucking episode of the whole show and yet it is enthralling um because it's it's just two amazing actors going at it as hard as they can and it, it's one of the shows that like we first when you first hear the pitch he's like oh my god i've watched 45 minutes of this and then you watch it it's, it's like it's gone it, it's so fast it's because they both were like in it if yeah. If just even one of them wasn't feeling it, it would not work at all. But it also, I also found out that uh, Leo McCurran during this broke down and like left like the set, I want to say for three days before they could get him to come back. Wow. So it was intense and, for him as an actor. Yeah. This goes back to uh, later interviews where he's talking about how Patrick McGowan bullied him and everything else and was like a horrible human being towards Ooh, him. I didn't know that. And supposedly this, if I remember right, this was filmed directly after uh, Big Ben. So that makes it goes sense. back there out of filming order. Right. Um, uh, and it's, uh, that's interesting because like when most people, well, I'm, I should say that, when I go back and think about the prisoner, you think about number two, I almost always think of Leo. 
right? This is the number two I was thinking of. And it's, I think it's largely because of this episode. I mean, Chimes of Big Ben is okay. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's a solid episode. But this episode is really what cements me in my mind as him being kind of like the main number two of the show. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that they were filmed back to back because he looks the same. He, he's kind of got the same. He's clearly very competent in the role, which you won't get if you if it's, if it's been like six months between filming, you know. Agreed. And so before we started recording, I told Eddie, I think that there is a love story in The Prisoner. And that love story is between number two and number six. Because if you see, he's watching like the flashbacks of the previous episodes, which is also a cost saving measure. But oh, yes, he gets into it. And every time he talks about number six, it is with almost like a, a hateful passion. And you have that hate that's going to like tip over into something else. And you can, I can see it. I know it's there. I think it is in the subtext of the show, and it's even still more so in the next episode. Uh, I mean, honestly, you're not wrong. I mean, uh, that that's something that I know. I, I didn't notice it quite to that depth, um, but certainly uh, when I was watching it again this time around, I noticed more that uh, there's a complicated emotional relationship here, more than just I hate you. Uh, mm-hmm. And it does go both ways. Uh, number six certainly does not seems to be regretting what he's doing to number two on some level. Uh, and number two very obviously regrets that it's gotten this bad and they has to do this to number six. And the the dialogue kind of coaches that as the, well, it's because, you know, it's my last chance and, you know, we're trying to injure him. But the lines are all delivered in a way that makes you feel like there's another layer going on there. And, and, and love is certainly one possible interpretation for that. And, and I, I think that's a valid uh, reading of the material. Um, it's... But the, I mean, the other thing that's really amazing is because, like, like we said before, uh, uh, they recreate uh, episodes from Six's Life. And the whole thing is structured kind of like a, a community theater, right? Where it's the um, one person wears a hat, one person carries a prop, and that's supposed to sell an entire scenario. And so each of the actors, like when they're going through his, his schooling and his military training and all that, um, each actor changes their their posture and their voice to really emulate the, the the moment in time they're trying to capture and you get lost in it i mean it, it, it you know that this is number two and number six but also the the narrative they're constructing it's so minimal that you, your brain starts to almost by necessity fill in the gaps and it helps to kind of draw you into this extremely bizarre scenario so i don't think that sorry one second I don't think that number six was in the military. I think that was during the transitional break where number two was breaking oh. and number two was in the military. Because if we're going from the time frame, number two should have been old enough to have fought in the war, which goes back to like killing all those people. Number six would have mm. been too young. And I think one of the reasons that number six is became, we're, we're going to say a spy and everything else is because right. he didn't fight in the war. And well, that, so that that's... transitionary stage is sort of like where number two completely is breaking down and number six is becoming like the more dominant one in that relationship. See, I had assumed it was a reference to the Korean War. But now that you say that, I don't know how much, how many, how many English troops were actually in the Korean War. Uh, I, was mostly, I think it was mostly an American conflict, if I remember correctly. 
I think so. But World War II. Um, yeah, World War II would make sense. And, and the fact that it's – again, uh, uh, this is the 60s, so um, the war was becoming less of, oh, this is an event that everyone knows, to more just kind of a more nebulous state of mind, which is part of the reason why the anti-war protests started kicking up is because you know, prior to the 50s, you always knew which war someone was talking about because there was only really one war going on. It was a big one. And everyone hated it. Now mm -hmm. the fact that you could say the war and you not know which one you're referring to was a point of tension and concern. Uh, and so that's a good point. You can read that both ways. And, I, and I'm sure on some level that's probably intentional um, because those experiences at that point would have been fairly universal, whether it had been number two in uh, World War II or number six possibly in the Korean War. But the reason I'm thinking it was number two is because that's also when number two is definitely on the decline and yeah. it's becoming less and less about six. And that's something else that's interesting is because uh, each scenario is framed very clearly. Number two is the position of authority. Number six is in the position of subservience. And number two is trying to assert that position of authority over number two's situation. But you're right around that point the power dynamic of how they speak to each other has shifted. They're moving at this point more, to more where they're more equals. And in later scenarios, uh, number two is clearly falling apart. And number six is, while still in a quote-unquote subservient stage, is clearly directing and maneuvering the conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's brilliant writing, unbelievable acting to have mm -hmm. so much of that conveyed. And some of it through like helmets and everything else that they're forced to wear while they're doing it. That's, oh! Yes, that was so good. Um, and then, like uh, uh, the scenario in the apartments, that's kind of just off to the side, like just an entire apartment with three walls. Uh, and, and again, like you know, it, it, it's a it's a pretty simple scenario of mixing the metaphor of a person who is poisoned, which is very much a spy trope, uh, to someone who's using alcohol to try to numb uh, the pain of a horrible job or assignment. Um, but also, but it, again, in the meditational thing is that the way that it's built, it's built like a television set. It's, it's very explicitly built like a television set, but we are watching this as a television show. And so the unreality of being on a set, but then every time they frame, if you watch the episode, a lot of times, unless it's extreme close up, when you're seeing shots of that set, you're always getting like a bit of the studio floor or, where the ceiling is so you can always see that it's a set it, it you can never you never are convinced that it's an actual apartment uh and then when the kate you know the bars slam shut on it um further solidifying and, and reinforcing that this is an unreal space um but you have this kind of weird distance like why is this one space really a built out where everything else is very vague um but then even when that's done there we're never quite away from it so like as things get more concrete visually on screen is when six is taking more and more power so when it starts off very surreal is when number two is in power and over time things get a little more concrete. because like again the war scenario um it was still off the other mind but we saw barbed wire there was smoke so there are more visual effects than there were in the previous scenarios so there's this kind of visual connection of it's never completely real, but it's more real as it asserts control over the scenario. Mm -hmm. 
Genius. Yes. Um, and whew, the acting near the end where both men are clearly broken. Uh, six and two are, you know, when, when the countdown is happening and six is just shouting numbers effectively. Again, on paper, <laughs> on the script, it looks ludicrous because it's really just six shouting numbers at two and two babbling nonsense. But each number sounds like it's a blow every time you know, six five or you know the fact that you know six can't say six little things like that um they sound painful they sound like they're attacks uh but it's all just through the voice and the body language and watching number two twitch every time a number happens like he's being hit uh it's it it, it just sells the psychological torment they've both been put through and you're right i mean it's it's again it, it's it's this is this episode is what you look at to go. This is what the prisoner is about. The prisoner is not about an amazing village in Wales. It's not about really bizarre concepts. It's not about whatever props they got off the BBC truck that day. It's about the acting and the writing. And this episode really is a very high example of both. And like even to add on to the acting aspect of it, it's when number two doesn't ask why you resigned, but he asked why did you care? And you yeah. see six is entire demeanor changes and you get that like interplay. It's like, why are you asking that? Why, why are you doing it like this to show like that is a, a totally different tactic and way to try to extract information from him that he then feels inclined to try to give something back for. Mm -hmm. And the fact that near the end, it's pretty clear that two started off reluctant. But near the end, Six is also like, he knows where he, what he has to do to get out of the scenario, but he knows, what, he knows what the damage will do to two and he doesn't really want to do it. Um, and so the, like you said, that when he has that step back of like, what is the tactic? There's also a bit of, please don't do this. Please don't go this route. Not for me. But more like he's thinking a few steps ahead, going, I know what I have to do to counteract this, and I know where that goes for you. And again, it's not in the dialogue, it's in the face acting and the uh, uh the physicality. Um, which I'm gonna be blunt. Patrick B. Ewan's face acting is usually not that great. Um he, he <laughs> does stoic and does wry and does wryly stoic, and that's basically it as a general rule. Um, but in this episode, he swings for the bleachers with it. But again, like, you know, uh, uh, Leo has just always been very expressive, very uh, bombastic. And so when he's able to bring it in and act small, it means something. And so you have uh, um, um, you and are also like uh, trying to put subtlety and nuance into his inflections, but also into his face, into his demeanor. It, it means something because we're not used to seeing six like this. We're not used to him expressing emotion, frankly, visually. And you can see it's like he's so stoic and stone-faced. So when it starts to leak out and come out on his face, that, that means something. Even when the audience aren't entirely processing it in the moment, but it, 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 it subconsciously hits you of like, this is, this is going too far. And the extra added touch, though, is that when the butler, the... Mm -hmm has been who's always been completely loyal to number two throughout the entire course of the show regardless of whichever number two we have starts kind of following six and doing what six wants 
Like that is the final point where you totally see it if you'd missed it before what's happened. That is another great point. We've not talked about the butler at all, but he's been a quiet presence in a lot of episodes. Literally, he has no speaking lines. Um, But also that actor is, I mean, again, you don't see much facial expression. He's, he's very stoic the whole time. Um, there's not a lot of physical acting, but how he carries himself in a scene, how he's placed in a scene often adds a layer to what's going on. That's different from what's going on. It's so like you said, um, he's very much bringing out the props and supporting two's narrative at the start. And then, yeah, near the end, he gives six a drink first before two, or he, grabs six and picks him up first and those small things that don't really matter for the the quote-unquote dialogue of the scene but Mm -hmm. tells us as the audience that he has seen which way the wind has shifted and is now going with the person he thinks is the person that should be in control genius is what it is uh so anything else about uh, one spot of time uh no i I could save my next thing for next one okay so fallout which is basically part two of this episode it's a, it's a two-parter um i want to try to recap this but whew. uh so number just, six just, is no no just just sing them bones and everyone will <laughs> them, oh god that i had never been so sick of them bones as a song before i saw this episode again so, oh that's right that song gets played a lot um uh but because of a degree absolute um Six is considered to have been the success, you know, the, the successful outcome of Three Absolute, and so he gets his wish, which is to meet Number One. Number One is appears to be hiding in what looks like a rocket silo, uh, and then there's a judge and a courts, and they're sitting in judgment of two people, um, one of which is the kid from Episode Fourteen, and another person, Number the original Number Two, uh, and they're both seen as rebels to both youth and the establishment, uh, whereas Number Six is sitting in a throne because he's now the number two. Uh, number one is revealed, but not really. Number six escapes with number two and number eight and the butler, and they go on to the road and they hitchhike. And this is a very divisive ending to this show. Let's just put that out there. And um, they play the Beatles. Don't forget the Beatles. So, okay. A complete bit of trivia, but yes, um, the, the episode plays All You Need Is Love, and it is one of the very few times where uh, the Beatles' music rights have never been challenged on subsequent re-releases of this show. Every version of this episode has always had the Beatles' All You Need Is Love playing in it, which is not true of just about any other television show. I do not know what demon-binding contract Patrick Ewan got the Beatles to sign to get that to happen. But every release of The Prisoner has had that, <laughs> that, that song playing. That is the most important takeaway of this because... Okay, so, so much like Lost, I mean, we talked about Downtree before, there was never going to be a satisfying way to end this show. There was never going to be a way to do it. So Patrick McEwen clearly said, fuck it. <laughs> it just didn't really end it is really what happened this is uh, if if people could see your face trying to think of a way to summarize <laughs> this for them they would they would understand what you want to convey but they can't so i get to enjoy it but i just want to highlight that eddie is a pain trying I'm, to find a way to uh, to make it understandable for people so let me start with the fact that Pat, patrick mcgowan actually doesn't talk much in this episode 
he also directed it. I know for a fact he directed this one. Um, so I'm sure some of that was just kind of to give him some time to actually direct this episode. Uh, number eight, it's heavily implied that he's the same character as from um, uh, Har- Living in Harmony, but there's no kind of connectivity between. And, and again, he, he's, he's, he's now repackaged into being kind of a British television version of a hippie. Uh, so it's that kind of weird moment where hippies were seen as violent and scary, uh, but also, uh, obsessive and weird. Uh, and so it, it becomes, it's a guy in top hat, almost proto goth, uh, who sings them bones incessantly and is seen as a symbol of youthful rebellion. Uh, and as I, Gave it the kind of top of it is that that was that was kind of the, the court all the, and the court are all people in masks who represent different aspects of society, and so they are challenging youthful rebellion as being just unfocused and not realizing what they're tearing down, um, and just pr- prone to chanting slogans and singing songs. Uh, and then number two, um, which is again Leo McKern, uh, and this is like a year and a half later. So you have this awkward scene where he's brought in, but you can't really see his face, and they suddenly give a lot of uh, uh, um, shaving cream over top of him and give him a haircut because he had lost his beard and cut his hair really short before this episode. So I had to quickly explain why he suddenly looks completely different. And they just go, oh, yeah, because the resurrection process gives him a haircut. Sure, it's basically what they say. Um, and he represents the establishment and how the establishment is also guilty uh, because they are too entrenched into the status quo. And uh, then during all of this, occasionally he'll cut to number two and he'll go, or to number six, who's down number two, and he'll go, okay, but what about number one? And then they'll cut to this giant number one with a red eye and smoke coming out of it and then go back to whatever the hell this court thing is. And this goes on for like 30 minutes. This goes on for a while. Uh, It feels like three hours. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in. I I was letting you summarize, but (laughs) it's hard to just summarize and be done with the summary of it. Um, So one of the things, though, if you notice, is that they talk about the youth of rebellion and how it's bad and how being the establishment is bad. But then they talk about how number number the new number two, previously number six, is exemplary because he is just the perfect amount of rebellion and the perfect amount of the establishment and how we could all stand down and praise number two, which all goes back to number six's biggest weakness always has been his own ego. And this is them having an entire show dedicated to feeding his ego and telling him he'll get what he wants. He'll get to see number one and having a, a mock trial for all the other people to come through. And then they're sent back down to the hole to be executed, put in the deep freeze storage, all praising two. Yes, and, and that's that's the other thing is, um, it, it's not clear, but it does seem to be implied that the whole court is supposed to be against the village, right? Is that now that six is in charge, um, the village as a whole is on trial, and, and but. It was previously established in previous episodes that the village was supposed to be a metaphor for society. And so therefore, by extension, society is now it's on trial. Uh, And number six, 
what little we hear of his lines, he very much is, is treating this kind of like the audience as, which is the, what the hell is going on here? Uh, because why, you know, these people are all from the village. And so you're putting yourself on trial, but you're kind of, uh, he seems to be correctly deducing that these are just scapegoats for a larger systemic problem. Um, and so like, in terms of that moment, right, in terms of this thing as a examination of the the foibles of society and using the metaphor of Six and the Village and these other characters as a way to kind of examine systemic problems and how people tend to demonize individuals and ignore systemic issues, it is fantastic. And I highly agree with a lot of people who say that in terms of that metaphorical examination is great. The problem is that has nothing to do with the actual show that it's in part of. <laughs> um, in terms of where the village is, why it was created, why number six retirement was important, who number one is, none of that gets answered. None of the actual questions the audience were asking or being answered. Patrick McEwen said, said, I'm going to answer your questions, but they're the different questions. And you, Richard, I'm going I'm to answer every other question you have except for the ones you're asking me. That's <laughs> basically what happened here. Um, but he the, was answering the question of who is like the greatest villain and who is the evil. Right. And, and, and that's, that's, I mean, it, you realize this is where the metaphor happens is because when he goes into scene number one, he takes off the, uh, it's a, it's a mask, which turn, underneath it is a monkey, which underneath it is his own face. He is number one. He is the evil. He is the reason why the village exists. Um, so we move purely into metaphorical language here is that we are the people who imprison ourselves. That's what the show is saying. We create our own prisons, and it's like that's that that's nice, that that's that's interesting, that's poignant, that's food for thought. But who the fuck kidnapped him in London? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is not that kind of show, right? Um, again, like I understand why audience. I, I'm I'm being hyperbolic here because I'm trying to emulate what the audience would have felt in 1967, right? I can only imagine. A British audience sitting down this episode and, and stepping up going, okay, I'm going to register the word letter to the BBC now. You know, I mean, it's... Oh, no. Do, do you know what happened after this aired? Actually, no, I don't. So, like, the BBC's call-in board lit up. <laughs> like, it was on fire with people calling <laughs> complaining. Patrick McGowan had to move his family out of country for months. Wow. Because wow. They, people are all over him. Because they're like, this is bullshit motherfucker <laughs> what is this and it was intense and even to for like years it went on and wow. so it's well, that noise was that bad wow oh oh yeah it was this is like was the most i think it was like the most popular show of the time and everything else everyone was watching oh, yeah, it, it was. and this mm -hmm. is him equivalently shitting on everyone ha ha no and and, and again it's like i i I recognize as a viewer, it's like, yes, I think it was a valid reaction to be frustrated if you're not expecting his ending. But I say all that to give context from, from the 67 video viewing perspective, but go back to Living in Harmony. You were never going to get a, a, a clear answer to this show, right? It's like when this show has done, what, what would happen if we de you know, deconstruct American mythology? And also, what if we make fun of Danger Man, you know, in The Girl Who Was Death, make fun of the show that this thing keeps getting compared to? Let's make fun of that exact show for an entire episode. And also the Avengers BBC version while we're on top of it. You're never going to get a straight cut answer. Um, and, and by the way, the actual ending of the show is 10 minutes of 
Wait, wait, wait. Oh, so, okay. so, Don't go there yet. Okay. Okay. Let's let's, there let's get okay. there. That's that's gonna be like the cherry on top of all this. So, as we mentioned, they played the Beatles, and for them playing the Beatles the entire time, all you needed, all you need is love, is a bloodbath of number eight, number two. And number six, new number two, gunning down like all these villagers in mass yes. and everything else, just killing them, killing them as they yeah. run around. And the judge escapes. You see the judge literally go, I'm getting out of here. It yes. runs away. That's when you get uh, number six going into DMAS number one. Well, and actually, um, but before going there, uh, um, was that kind of your Clockwork Orange connection too? Because that's why I was thinking at that time, that, that kind of poppy song with ultra violence for 67 itv standards but yes uh that's part of it but the top hat on the the kid well, sure. that should have been in the clockwork orange and some of the elements of the character so it all sort of dovetailed into that that's right that's fair. um but yes uh, uh we get a very kind of spy moment and also this is something else that's uh i noticed i'm watching this i haven't watched I did. I did. I, I did end up binging the whole show just because I love the show. Um, so I, I didn't pay attention. I didn't notice it so much later. But I think every episode of Prince, Prisoner has a fist fight. I, I'm almost 100 certain of that. So this almost kind of felt like here's the obligatory fist fight for the prisoner. Um, but also you're right. It is much more violent than most of else. Again, weird that Patrick McGowan. Hey, maybe we shouldn't show guns because it might encourage kids to do violence thing. Then presents to show guns in the most violent possible way for 60s television. And um, when, so, when we say guns, we just don't mean handguns. I mean like machine guns, ooh, like mounted yeah. chain guns. It is. Bum, 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 bum. I mean, Violet, there was a mount- beautiful. There was there was a mounted machine gun in the girl who was death, but also that was done so campily and bizarrely that I didn't count it. Um, but yeah, you're right. So this is a very again violent for the time scene, and then yeah, he goes into the missile silo. Um, unmasks finds out that he is instant number one the missile okay i actually have forgotten because it's it kind of i i've watched this thing several times i still don't quite know what happens after this point um but like the missile launches and they find out that uh they're in london (laughs) and they get take they escape in a truck which turns out to be the apartment set from the previous episode it's just the trailer of the truck. And so they're driving down the streets, looking out of the bars of the window, having a tea party, a literal tea party, as they're just going down traffic. It's, it's, it's number six, the original number two, number eight, and the butler, all just having a tea party. And then they start just dropping people off at different parts of London. It's like, hey, here's your stop. Nice seeing you, buddy. Later. Where's the and- missile? I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> But it, it's just not that. If you notice, the kid tries to hitchhike. Yes, yes. He tries to hitchhike north. That doesn't work. So he tries to hitchhike south. And it's like the irrelevance of youth not having a direction about where they want to go. It's like wherever the wind takes them. And number two just kind of wanders off. Right. Uh, and then uh, number six, we, we actually get a, a recap of the instruction of the show. Uh, number six drives back in. He's wearing a slightly different suit. Um, and go walks through a pair of doors, and that, that's pretty much where it ends. But wait, though, this goes back to like the circular nature of life and society and everything else, because the doors open automatically. Like the doors open oh, automatically right, yes. on the island. 
That's and right. the butler is now working at number six's slash number two's home when he mm-hmm. drives off. So equivalent, it could be going to start this entire cycle all over again, how nothing changes. Like you try to break away from society, you conform to society, you break away, you conform constantly over and over. Right. Um, so as a, as a plot ending, by a term, as an ending to the plot, this does nothing to help you. It does not end anything. As a thematic ending, it is amazing. Uh, because you're right. What is happening here is that the show on a metatextual level now has completely broken down. Uh, the show falls apart in front of your eyes. We started to see a little bit of that in uh, Living in Harmony. It happened further in Once Upon a Time. The show has now completely just lost all structural integrity. It ends up being a completely different show for a while. Um, and again, all of the um, filmed bits where they're on the road, there's no audio except for music. Um, at one point in time, number six talks to a random stranger on the street. The butler is doing something in the foreground. And back, we see him way in the background talking to a stranger. And then increasingly, Patrick McGowan gets more animated and starts pointing at things and yelling and dancing in the street. And we have no idea what he's saying or what the context of it is because the show has stopped existing as a, a coherent narrative. And then near the end, it, could do, it does one thing it can do, which is that it goes back to its own beginning to try to salvage some kind of cohesion as a metatextual narrative. That stranger, though, was a cop, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes, it was a police officer, yes. Which then in itself goes back and touches on in Many Happy Returns where he actively avoided the police because he thought they were after him to now actively engaging with them, hence breaking away from society and once again becoming part of society. Yeah, and and, uh, this, I guess, is a good point I need to kind of um, recap the show as a whole because that's kind of what this episode is doing, is that... At the end of this, if you're looking at this charitably, and to be fair, you should. It's a fantastic television. Um, what the show is doing is saying that the village was, in fact, only a metaphor for society. Um, number six has not escaped because he's back in London. He has intentionally reintegrated society. Uh, number eight has tried to opt out of society. You know, you mentioned hitchhiking back and forth, trying to find a way out, and maybe not be doing a successful job of it. Um, and so six does only what he can do, which is try to find some kind of balance. It's like, I can't have my old life. I cannot be a prisoner. All I can do is try to make this prison the best it can be. Um, and so you have that kind of synthesis of the village and his old life at the end. What makes you think he can't have his old life? What makes you think he's literally not driving back into the office that he just resigned from? Because on a visual level, um, he looks different and the ending plays out differently. Um, if it had been a complete shot-for-shot reenactment of, or just a re- way the show's been going, if just replaying at the beginning, um, I'll be more inclined to think that it is a, a very closed loop. Um, instead, I think more what's happened is that the show has spun out of control. Again, intentionally. I believe this is... I'm saying this breaking down thing is, is all intentional artistic design. Um, the show has spun out of control and is now trying to spiral back, but it can never quite capture us before, which you could argue is also a metaphor for trying to recapture the popularity of the show that has devoured his life for two years. 
I think <laughs> that you're I think that you're you're thinking in a more circular pattern for it. Like the constant breaking away from society and coming back is every time you break, even if you reintegrate, it's never the same. So it's more of an oval. So like he's going back to the office, but he's not the same person, exact same person as when he left. Right. It is mm -hmm. an evolutionary track of change. So now he has like no, I think no tie, but I think the road he's driving down on is like the same road to go towards the office. Yes. So yeah, he's going car. back in to work in the same car, sans tie. And so right. it'll all start over again. Right. And maybe. Uh, but that's what that's what things about the show is that you could there have been lots of different interpretations yeah. of it. Um uh and like we talked about before, this is show that's deep enough that even changing the episode order could give you different nuances of it. Um I have a preferred viewing order which breaks it into three rough seasons, um, and basically boils down to first season is him trying to escape, second season is him trying to integrate, and a third season is him trying to destroy the society he's in. Um, and that viewing works really well for what I'm trying to get out of it. Uh, but it's not any of the recommended viewing orders. Uh, even the television viewing order or the DVD viewing order or the online viewing order, it's, it's very chaotic, but there is a, I won't say a reason for it, but certainly you're not totally disoriented. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel incorrect. It feels wrong, but it doesn't feel incorrect, if that makes sense. Um, the show has enough there that you can take the interpretation, and I can take the interpretation, and other people take the interpretation of it, and they're all valid because the show has that much to go with. Oh, agreed. I, I, I've saw one theory that believes that um, the butler is number one. Do you know that's not, I, I can see that argument. Mm -hmm. um, and by that argument, then six is not escaped because he's still under the thumb number one. Yep. Yeah, figure that out. Um, I have people seen... frequently confuse like power is having to tell someone what to do or forcing them or being overly visible and active. That's not real power. <laughs> and that's a whole other discussion that we don't have time for today. Though. <laughs> my, 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 my favorite theory, just talking about fun band theories, my favorite fun band theory is that, um, Number six is not the protagonist. Number six is a torturer, and the number twos are each of the prisoners he's breaking. <laughs> I like that one too. They're basically like going, uh, finalized guy resigns, and then watching each of them fail miserably at for speed of that they don't care about. It's just to torment them and break <laughs> all these individuals. And like when I watched it with that in mind at once, I was like, that's amazing. That number six is the worst person on this show. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Um, any final thoughts on the prisoner? As we will probably never come back to the prisoner again. Oh man, um, I, I'm glad we did this. Honestly, uh, uh, in a way, I'm almost feel like two episodes is not enough because this is one of those shows that it, it's like a Russian doll. The more you talk about it, the more you can talk about. Um, at some point in time, you kind of just have to stop talking about the prisoner. <laughs> get out of it. Um, so we're done. That's it. No more. Um, uh, but this is definitely one of those shows that uh, uh, we, we, our format, I feel like is one of the few shows. This is not, does not do the show justice. It's one of the few times I really recommend absolutely trying to watch every episode. It's only 17 episodes. It's not that long of a binge. Um, and yes, the middle is, Super muddy, but also if you're in the mood for extremely weird television, it, it can be a lot of fun for very different reasons. 
it, it's definitely worth watching from beginning to end if you can do it. Hands down agree. Uh, um, so, now that we're done with this, Chris. Um, but wait, wait, I, I got one more thing. Okay. I want to go check out the Big Finish audio version of The Prisoner that you now mentioned. So, okay. uh, if other people would like for us to listen to it and talk about it, uh, let us know in the Discord. Sorry about yeah, your side. Um, no, that's fine. I've, just real quick then. Um, if you do that, it's uh, three box sets. Um, each one's four episodes long. Um, it, it's a both a remix of the original show and a reimagining of it. So you're going to so half of it's going to be like, oh, this is what's familiar. Half is like, what the heck is happening here? And that's by design. Um, but it's also written much more in a modern format. So it's going to be more heavily serialized, going to be more reoccurring characters. So if, you, if you're if you okay with those things going in, I do recommend it. But yeah, if, if we want to talk about the TV show, uh, the radio show, I'd love to do that. So honestly, I'd love to do more Big Fish audios on this show in general because I think you and I are both big fans of Big Finish as a company. Oh, yeah. Um, but anyway, so we've done this. We've done our little side thing. So obviously, Chris, now we're going to go back to talk to Arrow, right? Yeah. So I... I decided that Arrow is what Eddie really wants to do, but Eddie's getting settled into a new country. So I threw all that away. And next week we're going to do another bit. This actually, we're going to do, this is our mini season called uh, what the fuck is what this mini season is <laughs> yes. because the, the next little bit of this is going to be another show much like the prisoner where someone sat down and thought about it all the way throughout when they wrote every single episode and it ends on a concrete firm ending with no questions left in your mind whatsoever so next week we're going to start with uh twin peaks northwest passage or the pilot just the movie the u.s version because david yes. lynch is known for not leaving anything weird or awkward no or no any open endings um and, and actually uh, uh i'm glad you're ever doing twin peaks too because one of the things that is great about twin peaks is that the people who commissioned twin peaks not the creators but the tv people remember what happened with the prisoner and tried to cut that off at the past. And that also fails miserably <laughs> in a completely different way. So it'd be fun to go through that. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is very much kind of another surreal television show that has been, has aged really well in some respects, not in others, uh, has controversial ending. Um, and maybe endings. we'll even get to the, endings. Yeah, it's true. That's true because there's the TV ending, there's the movie ending, and then there's the, Series ending, ending of first season. Series and showtime. And yeah. second season, Twin Peaks Return. Whole thing. Um, I'm I think that you can watch it on Showtime or Hulu. I have a box set. I have like the Blu-ray box set because I'm a big Twin Peaks fan. Yes. Um so uh Twin Peaks is we're we're now moving to the area where um we have to give you multiple streaming recommendations because of the fact that we're in multiple countries. Um I believe Twin Peaks is available on Hulu in the US, but it is available on Paramount Plus in the UK. Uh, so you can get them both. Um, but uh, it's a good note uh, to end on real quick is that uh, going forward, there's going to be times where we're going to want to do a show or someone recommend a show, but maybe only one country can get it. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, so uh, if it's a case where like, in this case, maybe I can only get it, but Chris is the box set. If one country can get it and the other person can find another way to watch it, we'll probably still do it. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, obviously if one of us are cut out, we can't really review that. So in some ways that limits us, but I think we may want to open the format and say, well, at least one person can watch it streaming. So if the other person has the DVDs or whatever lying around, because a, a few times we've done that, like with uh, uh, Gundam Wing, I watch the DVDs and you're going to watch the DVDs uh, again. So, I mean, occasionally we'll do that if it makes sense, but um, we're still going to try to do it possible. 
uh, I would say, I just say we're, we're going to still try to make sure that where possible, it's on a, a streaming service. We don't have to pay individual episodes or for a whole season as much as we can. But now that you mentioned anime, there is an anime that I almost tweeted at you about this morning that I want to do. The one that I loved is, when I first saw it 22 years ago. You want to, uh, you want to take one? a guess? It's only six it's not episodes. Cowboy Bebop. Nope, it's only six episodes. What is this? I have no anime. It's only six episodes. Fear Curie. I don't think I've ever seen that one. FLCL. If you look at the journalist account, it tweeted an image of it this morning. It almost Probably. tagged you. Probably. I actually never seen FLCL, so maybe we'll have to and think about that one. It is one that we should bring back our guest from Ava to do, I think. Oh, Rick, Rick, Rick Byrne? Yeah, Rick Emily? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, so yeah, we're just going to now have a podcast meeting on air. That's how this works. <laughs> well, come on. Like, we haven't really talked now in about a month so yeah it, it's been a while so so we do appreciate y'all kind of uh between the uh, armor wars digression now that this other digression um i know we're, we're taking a while to get back to superheroes it's been a really weird few months for both of us um yeah. but uh, i appreciate you sticking with us um we will get back to it but i think at the moment yeah it, it'll be good to compare and contrast american and british surreal television and, and Twin Peaks and Prisoner are not an obvious pairing, but once we both, well, I think it was you uh, suggested the pairing. I was like, oh yeah, that that's, that's a really good connection. So we will, so we will get back to Arrow, but we have some time to get to it. Yep. So really after Twin Peaks, we should have a better idea about our own schedules and we'll likely be jumping back into Arrow. The thing that Eddie has been waiting for, for over a year now, since we're in a new year. Look at that. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And, and you joke, but actually I do kind of want to talk about Arrow. <laughs> We <laughs> actually did like the first couple seasons of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, as we are making our way through the prisoner, people want to talk to you about whether you are a number or a free man, Chris. Where will they find you online? I'm not a number. Um, I can be still found on Twitter, but the best place is probably going to be the Discord where we keep having random chats about episodes and trying to have some interesting discourse. Uh. Same for me. Um, the the, the Discord is definitely kind of where I hang out these days. Um, if you do want to, uh, I still have my professional account on Twitter is Pugsteady. Uh, that's also my business account or my website, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y.com. Uh, and yeah, depending on when you listen to this, uh, uh, either check out the Pugmire Kickstarter or maybe consider uh, getting a pre-order for it. Uh, regardless, you always find that information on realmsofpugmire.com. Uh, so with that, we will see you all next week as we go to the city of Twin Peaks. Catch you later. I'm a free man. <laughs>